beginning in Acts chapter 22, verse 30. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou witted wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revealest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there was a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part rose and strove, saying, We will find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there rose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And then it was day certain, and then it was day certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than forty which had made his cons- this conspiracy. And they came to the chiefs, priests, and elders, and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though he would inquire something more perfectly concerning him, and we or ever he come near are ready to kill him. And Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, and he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man to the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee, who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is that thou hast to tell me? And he said, And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldst bring Paul down tomorrow into the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not but do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves under an oath, that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are and now are they ready looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart, and charged him, See that See thou tell no man that thou hast shewed these things to me. You may be seated. Before we jump into the text, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we welcome you and we thank you for your word here open before us this morning. We thank you that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. We thank you for the testimony of the Lord that it's sure making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant by them is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Father, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable this day in your sight. We pray this in the name of our Lord, our strength, our Redeemer. Amen. 
on Thursday evening, Charleston County Coroner Ray Wooten released a full list of names and ages of the nine victims of Wednesday's church shooting in South Carolina. Cynthia Hurd, 54 years of age, a manager with the Charleston County Public Library. Ethel Lance, 70 years old, retiree who recently worked as a church janitor. Reverend Clementa Pinckney, age 41, a South Carolina state senator and pastor at the church. Susie Jackson, 87-year-old, longtime member of the church. Payne Middleton, doctor, 49 years of age, former Charleston County Community Development Director. Sharonda Coleman Singleton, 45 years of age, a church pastor, staff person, speech therapist, a high school track coach. Myra Thompson, 59 years of age, also serving on staff at the church. Reverend Daniel Simmons, senior, age 74, another pastor at the church. And Tawanza Sanders, a 26-year-old, recent 2014 graduate. Second Corinthians, chapter one, verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may able, be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, So our consolation also abounds through Christ. Church, if there's ever a time to call upon the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, it's in situations like the one I just described. Death in general. Isaiah 53, verse 8, in the midst of the passage that's prophesying of the suffering servant to come, our Lord Jesus Christ... Isaiah 53, verse 8, speaks of how he was cut off from the land of the living. These nine people were cut off from the land of the living on Wednesday evening inside their own church building. Family members, friends, those belonging to the church are grieving the loss of husbands, wives, colleagues recent college grad, and pastors. You know, you don't plan to be cut off from the land of the living inside the Lord's house. But it happened. May the Lord's comforting presence strengthen those family members who remain. I pray his comforting presence to bind together that particular church family as they walk through the trial of losing real people, not off of the roster membership role. They lost them. Their lives are no more here. I pray as well for the Lord's comforting presence within the body of Christ as a whole, that we would uphold and intercede for these saints in the days ahead. If you've read the text for today, you'll notice there are no deaths specifically mentioned. You may wonder why I bring up the situation in South Carolina as a prelude to the text. The folks gathered in that church building on Wednesday night had no idea their lives were about to be cut short. I read the text here in Acts. 
And I recognize that Paul, who, who had been holding on to some hope of going to Rome and, and perhaps Spain at some point, he finds himself sitting in the Roman barracks in Jerusalem, not sure what's about to happen. He's literally staring death right in the face. He has every reason to believe that death is imminent. He's more than likely still feeling the effects of remembering the scene of that angry Jewish mob seeking to kill him. He has marks on his body where they have beaten him. This all remains fresh on his mind. See, he finds himself in a place of uncertainty, not sure how all this is going to work out. And yet today's text, what we're going to see, is going to shine light upon the Lord and his comforting presence. In fact, that's the big idea that I'd like to submit to you this morning. The presence of the Lord is our comfort. The presence of the Lord is our comfort. For those of you here today in Christ, do you draw comfort daily from the ongoing presence of the Lord in your life? You might find yourself sitting here this morning in an uncertain place. You might not know how things are going to work out at the office. You might not know how your marriage is going to keep going. You might not know how your children are going to navigate through some of the trials that they're currently experiencing. Whatever circumstance may be present in your life today, this morning, I want you to know from God's word that the presence of the Lord is your comfort. Maybe you've been a Christian for some time now, but you find yourself parked right in the midst of circumstances that, frankly, make little sense to you. It's hard to explain it. The text is speaking this morning to you. Draw comfort, friends, from the presence of the Lord abiding in you. And listen, for those of you who do not have Jesus Christ in your life, you are forfeiting the substance of comfort when you do go through a trial in your life. You see, in Christ, while these bad things may happen, we have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. Amen? Holy Spirit abiding in us, providing us with comfort when we go through these trials. God is the God of mercy And he's a God of all comfort. As we pick up the text today, Paul finds himself back in the Roman barracks after the Jewish crowd erupted over that one word. What was that one word? Gentiles. Crowds in a frenzy, they're throwing stuff, tearing their garments and just causing a big scene. Paul finds himself right now in the midst of uncertainty. The commander of the garrison, he's been trying to figure out why these Jewish people are so angry at Paul. Instead of flogging Paul for more details, he now finds himself withdrawing. He now finds himself uncertain about how to proceed at this point. And so what's he do? Well, leads me to believe, based on the text, he sleeps on it. The next day, there's a plan. 
It says, because, in verse 30, chapter 22, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused, that's Paul, why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds, commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear. He commanded them to appear. He called the meeting. He brings Paul down and sets him before them. So in an effort to bring clarity to the situation, make sure we understand the context of what's happening. The commander is looking for clarity so that he might know why these Jewish people are so mad and angry at Paul. Keep in mind also as he is brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, this governing body, Primarily, we're looking at three groups of people. In the Bible, you might recall the references to the chief priests, to the elders, and to the scribes. Okay? We see in Paul and we see in the commander two men in a state of uncertainty. One man proceeds to assert his authority in an effort to know for certain that which he currently does not know. The other man has no authority. That would be Paul. He's a prisoner in chains. Released from his bonds, but for a moment. He's an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see from the text how the Lord orchestrates his comfort in Paul's life through the plan submitted by a pagan commander. This defense in Acts 23 seems like it falls flat on its face. It appears to be a total wash in terms of effective witness for the Lord Jesus. It has the look of not providing any clarity whatsoever for the commander. But as things move forward, the Lord's work is moving forward as well. God is using the circumstances for his good and is dispensing his comfort to his chosen vessel, Paul. I want you to see this in the text. The first part here from verse 30 through verse 10 of chapter 23 is really the context for the Lord's comforting presence. The context for the Lord's comforting presence. You know, there's always a context leading up to that moment in time when the Lord's comforting presence has truly arrived on the scene, so to speak. There's context. In fact, each of you here has context for the Lord's comforting presence in your life. You might find yourself in a waiting pattern. You've applied for a job. You haven't heard anything definitive to this point. You're waiting. Maybe you found out you're expecting. You might recall that time when you were expecting. And you begin the waiting process while that baby is growing. Psalm Chapter 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet on a rock and established my steps. See, waiting patiently for the Lord is not something we excel at. (laughs) We're not very good at waiting today, are we? We have, in fact, we live, we live among a people who, who like things right now. We live amidst a fast-paced culture who likes their fast food, like their fast cars, like their fast internet connections. I still remember the day of the dial-up. The dial-up. You remember those funny sounds it made whenever you clicked the button? And it would take who knows how long for it to finally come on. We, we live in a now. Give it to me now. We, we don't like to wait. You know, but, but we need to understand something from God's word. There are some things in this life that we cannot learn fast. Trials are given to teach us 
to conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus. God's sanctifying work happens over time in our lives. We're not all of a sudden brought to full maturity in Christ, are we? (laughs) But we're babes. And Lord willing, we grow as we continually feed on the word of God, tasting and seeing that he is what? Ask a referee whether he's ready to work a high school varsity game. And the majority of them are going to say yes. But you put them in the context of a heated varsity game and you're going to see pretty quickly that they're probably not ready. See, it takes time to develop as a referee. It takes time to know the rules of the game. It demands hard work. Seeing plays, repetition, learning how to communicate with coaches, learning how to communicate with players. Think about where you work. If you had a new person off the street come in and start tomorrow from scratch. Doing the very same things that you're doing. How effective would they be? Say you have a series of uh, regular set of clients that you service in your company. And you've been with the company for over 20 years and you've established relationships over time with that that, that clientele. Solidifying a consistent presence and cultivating a trust. And the new guy comes in and attempts to do your job minus the 20 years of experience, minus the solid relationships that have already been established. What are the logical effects of such a change? Would you agree that Paul's context leading up, he he has before him, before we read chapter 23, we have some groundwork that's already been laid for Paul in his life. We're, We're privy to Paul's life before he was drawn to the Lord on the road to Damascus. We're privy to that conversion experience itself in Acts chapter 9. We know about his early years as a believer and how the the Jews shunned him in Jerusalem. Just as they're doing right now. We know about his time with Barnabas serving in the church at Antioch. We know about his calling to the Gentiles and and being set apart by the Holy Spirit in Acts 13. We know that he traveled the Mediterranean preaching and teaching the word of God. And we saw some of the trials that faced him as he boldly delivered the gospel. And now he comes back to Jerusalem with an offering from the Gentile churches. He comes back to give word of what God has done through the ministry, through the work of the Gentiles as he's traveled these last four or five years. And then he's informed that the church in Jerusalem has been literally catechized about Paul. They had received a certain word about Paul. And that word wasn't good. Paul is receiving this information as he's arrived in Jerusalem. He's then seized in the temple almost killed, rescued by the Roman soldiers. He's allowed to speak. He's then taken back into the barracks. He's almost scourged, which would have perhaps caused death. And now it provided another opportunity to speak to the Jewish governing body. Paul finds himself in chains, prophesied that it would be so. Remember just a chapter or two earlier where Paul is speaking to the group of the Ephesian elders and he he testifies that in every city the Holy Spirit testifies that chains and tribulations await me. He says to those people, he says, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? I am ready not only to be bound, but to die for the Lord Jesus. I'd like you to see the context of Paul's life. Because you see, the context of Paul's life leading up to where we are, it's shown a remarkable evidence of the presence of the Lord already. In his his life. See back in Acts 9. We see in 15 and 16. That he was a chosen vessel of the Lord. To bear the name of Christ. Before Gentiles. And before kings. And before the children of Israel. We see that he was going to suffer. On a large scale for the name of Jesus. We see that he's sent out by the Holy Spirit. Acts 13. He's sustained through the stoning at Lystra. Remember that? He's rescued out of a Philippian jail. By an earthquake. He's reminded in Corinth 
of the Lord's presence at a very difficult season of ministry. 18, Acts 18, 9 and 10, the Lord says, Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you, for I have many people here in this city. I share all of that to help you see that Paul has already experienced prior to Acts 23 the comforting presence of the Lord. Let's look at these first 10 verses here in chapter 23 and take note of what's going on. Take note of how these things are affecting Paul, the prisoner. First of all, his opening statement. Paul looking earnestly at the council. That, that phrase, looking earnestly, has in mind to glare or to stare at. Imagine Paul standing before the governing body. And he's looking around the room. Eyeball to eyeball. Staring. At the audience to whom he's speaking. You see, Paul knows many of these people. In fact, that helps us understand how he begins his address. He doesn't begin his address like Stephen did. Or like Peter did. But he begins his address with men and brethren. It's an address that would be one that would be spoken to someone who is an equal. For you see, Paul, I believe, knew many of these folks. Whether Paul actually served on this council at one point in time or not, I believe it is very clear that Paul would have known many of these people to whom he's speaking. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now we can read that, that, that question or that, that, that passage right there and we can think to ourselves, wow, that's pretty strong. That's, that's pretty bold for him to say that. I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. When we think about the conscience, and that's a message in and of itself, the role of the conscience in the life of a believer. But for Paul, in his conscience, there was a day when, according to his conscience, he was operating and doing what he was supposed to be doing. We know, based upon his life, based upon what the Word shares with us, that there was a day when he was abiding and walking in that righteousness which is from the law. He no longer is abiding there, but he is now operating with, according to the righteousness which is from God, which is by faith. But he makes this claim, and implicit in this claim, Bruce Milne writes this in his commentary, he says, Paul remained, this, this claim that he, he writes here, He's, he's claiming that as a disciple of Jesus, Messiah, a faithful, law-respecting Jew. He, he's putting forth here that he has remained as a disciple of the Messiah, faithful, law-respecting Jew. And Ananias, who's the high priest, presumably saw this as a blatant lie and even blasphemy. So Paul's response to being struck... On the mouth. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> you know, we read this, and, and sometimes you read the Bible, and there are certain pictures and images that come to mind, aren't there? Do you have a picture in mind when he says this? Is there any kind of animosity? Any kind of movement that accompanies these words? Or do you think he's standing here like this? Just putting those words forth. You see, I believe here what we have before us is a very honest assessment. And I, and I love this about the Bible because we see it in the life of Jonah. We see it in the life of Peter. We see it in the life of David. Some of these folks in the scripture 
that fell, sinned. And here he's responding, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Perhaps some close association to what Jesus spoke to those Pharisees a while back. Speaking to them about being a whitewashed tomb. And the whole idea that you, you might look good on the outside, but inside you are just broken. There's nothing there. It also has in mind kind of images of Ezekiel 13, which is really a judgment passage and speaking to a wall plastered with this untempered mortar. And there's going to be a day when it's going to, when it's going to storm and, and that's all going to be washed away. You see, he's speaking these words here in verse 3. And he, he goes on, he says, you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Leviticus 19.15 talks about the idea of not judging with partiality. Judging according to righteousness. And Paul is submitting that. He's putting that forward. And then verse 4 comes. And it's the council's response to Paul's outspoken words. Do you revile the high priest? Once again... I picture how that was spoken. Paul's reasoning in verse 5. I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. Now there are many folks who have many different ideas and thoughts about what this really means. Some of you sitting here in the chair this morning might find it hard to believe he really didn't know that was the high priest. Some hold to the idea that, that perhaps... Because Paul's eyesight was so poor, he couldn't tell who it was. Some believe that because the meeting was held such an early hour, it was somewhat darkly lit in the room and, and he couldn't see in the place where he were and didn't know. Some hold to the idea that there were lots of voices crying out at the time. And so Paul didn't really know who was speaking these words. Some actually hold to the idea that this is sarcasm by Paul. In other words, if it was sarcasm, it would be as though Paul would be saying, well, truly, if you were the high priest, you wouldn't say what you just said. But then there's also the idea that Paul didn't know. And based on what comes after this, I tend to believe that Paul really didn't know. You see, because this was truly an informal meeting, and it's possible because of the informal nature of the meeting that the official robes, the official attire of the high priest was not on. Context also helps me interpret the passage. He says... After I did not know, he says, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. You see, there seems to be this apologetic tone that comes immediately. He, he recognizes his wrong, it seems, and he, he's quickly submitting biblical words to pinpoint why his action is deemed wrong. Listen, it's wrong... Because God's word says so. The basis for his actions is what the word says. And when our actions don't align with the word, we repent of that sin. But here's where having the word in you helps. Acknowledging you have sinned, repenting or turning from your sin... And knowing why it is sin, because God's word has said so. Paul is exalting the word of God in the text as his measuring rod for how to walk. Uh, this is instructive for all of us. It's not the main point of the passage, but it's so instructive for us. His follow-up action. Verse 6. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. 
Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Here, too, we have some questions. In fact, this, this passage really raises lots of questions. What's Paul doing? Is Paul just trying to stir up the water here? Have you ever been in a situation where you knew, we talked about this last week, you knew that if you just put forth certain words, how that might get a rise out of that other person? The word in our home that we talk about quite often is provoking. Any of you siblings in here ever provoked a brother or sister? Anybody ever done that? Well, when you read this passage, that's one thing that comes to the surface. It almost seems like Paul is just provoking. He's, he has an angle, perhaps, it seems, as you read. Is he just trying to distract them from attention on himself? Is he tired of being the, the one where the light's shining on all the time? Is he ready to just have them duel it out, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The text says when he perceived that one part was Sadducees, the other part Pharisees, he makes this statement. Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee. Immediately, there's a line drawn. Do you see this? And I'm the son of a Pharisee. I've been a Pharisee for a long time. It's grain that's rooted in me, he says. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, right here we need to understand and think through, why is Luke submitting these words right here from Paul? The charges have already been established. Remember that. Chapter 21, verse 28. What were the charges put forth? The charges were that this man speaks everywhere, all the time, against the people, against the law, and against the temple. Remember that? Those are the charges. Well, Paul here is shouting out in the assembly that he's being judged for his hope in the resurrection of the dead. Remember... Context is, the commander is wanting to know for certain why the Jews are so upset with Paul. The Jewish people have submitted their charges. But Paul here may have another motive besides simply dividing the assembly and taking the spotlight off of himself for a moment. It is also possible, as we read the text, that Paul is doing his best to help the commander see what's at the core of the problem. You see, the core of the problem I believe Paul is trying to communicate is that this is a deeply rooted theological problem. It's a problem about God. It's a problem about the Messiah, Jesus. It's a problem about the Holy Spirit. He's putting forth these things. Isn't it possible that Paul wants the commander to see that What's happening here is really a spiritual problem at the core. We see the dissension in verses 7 through 10. A dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The assembly is divided. And then Luke gives us a little information, a little background for the reader who doesn't know why there's such a firestorm right now. Pharisees and Sadducees, what do we need to know? Luke tells us in one verse, Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit. Supernatural. Let's just label it supernatural. The Sadducees don't, don't buy into that. They don't believe that. The Pharisees, however, confess both. In fact, we could look at, at these two parties and we could look at them politically. We could look at them socially. We could look at them spiritually. And we can see they're on different ends. The Sadducees were typically the wealthy, the elite Group. We think about politically, the Pharisees were a bit more progressive. The Sadducees were loyal to the Roman governing authorities. Oh, for their own benefits, of course. You see, they had concern over keeping their power and their name. And so they had, as one of their great desires, to please the Romans so that they could keep their office. And spiritually speaking, we see that one of the dividers is, is resurrection of the dead. 
Tell me, if the Sadducee holds on to this belief, a Sadducee, truth be told, cannot hold to what it is scripturally to be a Christian. Because you see, the gospel, one of the cores of the gospel, is it not the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? And we see that this governing, at least this part of the governing body, doesn't hold to that truth. I found it interesting in verse 9 that the Pharisees, as they rise to give testimony, they say, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against whom? God. Well, that got me thinking. Well, I remember that time back in Acts chapter 5 when the, the governing body was upset with the apostles. In verse 34, one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. And he talks about these, these, these men from past history who rose up and tried to do something. And it busted, it failed, it fell through. And then he says in verse 38, Now I say to you, keep away from these men, the apostles, and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. You see, I think there were some in the council, and in particular the Pharisaic group, who remembered exactly what Gamaliel said some time ago. And now they're submitting right here. We find no evil against Paul. If the angel of spirit spoken to him, let us not fight against, not Paul, but let's not fight against God. We already had that round. We don't want to go there again. Paul's taken them by force back into the barracks. He's about to be torn to pieces. And I want you to think and consider for just a moment, verse 10. He's taken back into the barracks. How is, how is Paul feeling about this time? I, I'm led to believe that this is probably one of the low moments in the life of Paul. You know, David had one of those low moments, didn't he? Elijah had one of those low moments. We think about these people of God who did great things for the Lord and for his work. But we see the Bible also gives us pictures of, of these, these saints who had moments where they just were down. They, they were, there was a, a time of discouragement. Things are not going well. His opportunity to witness to his countrymen seems to be lost. His hope of going to Rome and, and Spain seems to be gone. There's this period of uncertainty. He's now waiting again. And this is the context, church. This is what I want you to see. This is the context leading up to the Lord's comforting presence. Look at verse 11. But the following night, 24 hours later, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified... For me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. This is the arrival of the comforting presence of the Lord. The arrival. We talked about the context leading up to this. Verse 11 is the arrival of the Lord's comforting presence. It says, the Lord stood by him. This is different than the Lord appearing to him in a dream. This is different than Paul being in a trance and being visited by the Lord in, in a, some different way and shape or form that he has in previous. The Lord stood by him. He's discouraged, he's dejected, he's down. This is a low moment in his life. And now the Lord stands by him. It represents the very presence of the Lord in his life, ministering to his soul in the midst of a difficult time right now. It, breathing new life and hope and encouragement into his situation, even as he remains in chains. MacArthur, in his commentary, speaking to this particular point in time, he says, Paul's reaction... Paul's reaction was that of 
a mature Christian. He's seeing exactly what has happened. And now in his own life, he is speaking to, is able to have this assurance that the presence of the Lord is with him through this very hard time. Church, there is nothing greater to know than the Lord's comforting presence is with you even in the midst of a hard time. And some of you here know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced that. You know what that is. Paul, right here in verse 11, is receiving. He receives a word of commendation. Be of good cheer or take heart is the phrase. In fact, this word, this phrase is used by our Lord on four other occasions in the, in the, in the scriptures. We see in Matthew 9, verse 2, it's used of the paralytic. He's, Jesus is speaking to the paralytic, be of good cheer. A little bit later in Matthew 9, verse 22, he's speaking to the woman who had, who had the bleeding issue. And he says, daughter, be of, be of good cheer. At Matthew 14, he says those same words to the disciples who see him walking on the water. And we see it at the end of John 16 when Jesus is encouraging them right before he goes to the cross. You will have tribulation in this world, but take heart. Why? Because Jesus tells them, I've overcome the world. I want you to notice, not only does he commend Paul, comfort him, he calls him by name. There's a relational aspect here. The Lord stood by him, calls him by name. You know, these words of commendation, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, it's almost as though the Lord is saying, Paul, good job, way to go, well done. As you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness. Here are the words of mission coming forth. promise you must also you are now going to bear witness at Rome hope renewed I believe right here in verse 11 Paul's heart starts beating a little bit faster when the comforting presence of the Lord arrives on the scene I want you to notice right here what the Lord doesn't say in verse 11 I think that too is instructive The Lord doesn't say when you're going to get out of the barracks, Paul. The Lord doesn't say how you're going to get out of the barracks, Paul. Doesn't say that. The Lord doesn't say how you're going to get to Rome. The Lord doesn't say who he's supposed to speak to in Rome. In particular. There are some unknowns here. There are unanswered concerns. And yet what is sure is this. Paul must bear witness at Rome. Think about that for just a moment. The comforting presence of the Lord is not going to keep you trial-free, pain-free. But it is the blessed assurance of going through the trial with the Lord. You know that psalm in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores, he what? He restores my soul. That's what our good shepherd does, church. He restores our soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, what do they do, church? They comfort me. One of the best examples in in the scriptures to kind of give you this picture Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember those three fellows? And they're standing before the king. And they're not going to fall. They're not going to fall for this. They're not going to do this. They're very bold in what they say. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. 
And the king, remember, is looking in. And how many people does the king see? Four. Symbolizing what? Very presence of the Lord with them in the fire. The Lord stood by Paul. He's with him right here in Paul's own fire. The comforting presence of the Lord is available to each one here in Christ. How so? Did you know that the Spirit has another name? We, we oftentimes refer to him as the Holy Spirit, but he's also known as the Comforter. Did you know that? The Comforter, the Helper, the Teacher. How many of you have experienced the comforting presence of the Lord through the ministry of the Holy Spirit? You see, the idea of the word behind the person of the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside. Job had what we would call some miserable comforters, didn't he? But the Holy Spirit who abides in you, will always serve as a comfort to your soul in your time of need. The comforter is always going to remind you of Christ. He's always going to point you to the truth. He's always going to lead you in the way of the Lord. He's going to remind you that you are a child of God and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Romans 8. Nothing. Nothing can separate you. Not even this current crisis that you might be working through. Will you turn with me for just a moment to Isaiah? This was rich as we're speaking to this part of the passage of Scripture. Isaiah 43. I just want to read the first three verses. Parts. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Listen to this. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. What's the Lord doing when he stands beside Paul? Calls him by what? His name. I've called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will, what? Be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Is that not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God. How does the comforting presence of the Lord minister help? How, 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 did, how is that helpful? To understand his ministry in your life. How is that helpful moving forward? That's the remainder of the passage. And i just like to briefly touch on it. In verses 12 through 22. Because here we see in 12 through 22. The timeliness of the Lord's comforting presence. The timeliness. The arrival happens at a time when it's needed. Paul's, he's, he's down, he's, he's depressed, he's, he's, he's not in his right mind about how things are. He's uncertain. And the Lord shows up. And then when the Lord shows up, we see right on the heels of that in verse 12, something is going on. That's not good. You think Paul has it bad. It's getting worse. The Lord stood by Paul's side, relating to him, commending him, pointing him to things yet to come. That's, by the way, the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the very next verse, we see 40 men plotting together to take Paul's life. And in short, what we see here, these 40 men make a pact that they are going to not eat, not drink for, four, for 40 days. They're just going to stop everything so that they can do one thing. Kill Paul. That's what they're going to do. That's the plan. Now notice, don't, don't just skip by this. Notice part of their plan is to go to, verse 14, the chief priests and the elders. Now, when I read that, I just, I stepped back and I was, man, these guys are bold. These guys must really think the chief priests and the elders are for this. Keep in mind that Sanhedrin was made up of three groups. There's one group in here that's not mentioned. They didn't actually pull the scribes into this meeting. 
Because in large part, the scribes were the Pharisaic group. So they're going to the group that in that, remember they've just been in dissension here, Pharisees, Sadducees. And so these, these men come together and they go to the Sadducees, the large group of Sadducees, and to get an ear. And they say, we've bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we've killed Paul. Push stop for just a moment. Remember a few verses back when Paul said what he said and, and the high priest had him struck on the mouth. And Paul talked about, hey, you know, he, he came back pretty strongly. And Paul was talking about the one who was sitting to judge and how he's judging wrongly. Think about this. The governing body, the Jewish people, the governing body right here is lending an ear to a plot on someone's life. Last I checked, that's one of the Big Ten. You know the Big Ten, right? The Big Ten Commandments. Do you remember? You shall not... Murder? Maybe they forgot that one here. Maybe they've brushed that one aside here in verse 14 as they've come to deliver what they're going to do. Because I don't catch any wind of, hey guys, this is a poor idea, don't do it. Don't go here. Bad idea. No, in fact, it seems like they're on board with it. So they go and they deliver that news and they tell them what they want to do. And then we get to verse 16. And I want you to highlight that, verse 16, because it really speaks to, in many ways, again, the timeliness of the Lord's comforting presence. In God's timetable, he puts this young man, Paul's sister's son, we could just say his nephew. We don't know how old exactly this young man is, but out of nowhere, Luke just Puts him right here in the text. He was in the earshot of the plan. Never heard of Paul's relatives all that much. We have no idea how he got there in Jerusalem. We have no idea what his role was. All we know is what Luke tells us, which is sufficient, that he heard what the plan was. What's the young man do? He runs to the barracks and he tells Paul exactly what the plan is. Paul then says, hey... To the centurion, will you take this young man? Take him to the commander. He has some important news he needs to deliver. And so the centurion takes the young boy. And he takes him to the presence of the commander. And the commander pulls him by the hand to the side and says, what is it? And the son lays out exactly what's going to happen. And he's cautioning and warning, don't do this. Don't yield to them. These men are waiting to take Paul's life. And that's the way verse 22 ends. And he tells the young man not to tell anybody about this. See, the timeliness of the Lord's comforting presence is rich. Man plots and the Lord is preparing. Man schemes and the Lord provides his very presence to counter whatever's coming down the pike. I was reminded of Psalm 2, nations, right? How the nations are raging against the Lord. And he sits in the heavenlies and, and laughs at the fact that they're trying to do something against what he's got going on. We see this happening right here. And in the midst of it, he has arrived on the scene, standing by Paul, infusing Paul with his word of encouragement to keep going. And he's given him a word of promise that he must also bear witness at Rome. Even though Paul doesn't know how it's all going to happen, he knows it's going to happen because the Lord's told him so. For Paul, his course had been set. God's promise had been put forth. The Lord's presence has been Paul's comfort all along, even up to this point we've seen in the text. Acts 9, 15 and 16 speaks of how the Lord is going to use his vessel of election, that he's going to bear the name of the Lord among the, the kings and the Gentiles and the children of Israel. And he's going to be paraded in that process through the streets of suffering along the way. 
The reminder from the Lord himself in verse 11 is do not be afraid of those trying to take your life. Instead, keep testifying of me. Keep preaching the word. Press on toward the goal to win the prize for which I've called you heavenward in Christ Jesus. And with the comforting presence of the Lord abiding in Paul, he can focus on bearing witness to Jesus and leave the results and the outcomes up to the Lord, whether that results in life or death. For Paul, the Lord Jesus is his vision, that him be thou my vision. I was thinking about those words and was thinking about the life of Paul. And truly not be all else to him except the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ alone is on the throne of his heart. Christ serves as the true high king of heaven through whom his victory has already been won. Because of that he can say from the heart, whatever may come his way, Lord Jesus, whether in life or in death, you still will be the vision of my heart. See, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort is calling you to himself today. Draw near, the Bible says, and he will draw near to you. Give him your circumstances, whatever they may be. Give him your uncertainty, whatever it is. Trust him, friends, with all of your heart. He will promise to direct your steps. He promises to do that. He doesn't promise long life here. And our brothers and sisters, that church in South Carolina found that out this past week. We're not guaranteed another day. But he does promise. While he doesn't promise long life, he does promise everlasting life. See, a life cut off from the land of the living might seem a wasted life. But the God of comfort never wastes, never ignores painful experiences, hard experiences. I want you to hear those words of the Lord as we close, and I want you to write them down, deposit them in your mind. Be of good cheer. Put your name in there. Psalm 11, verse 4. Why is it? How is it that we can be of good cheer? Psalm 11 verse 4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. Isaiah 41, 9 and 10 says, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you, have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And in closing, I'd like to read 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, by the way, was that last letter of Paul. Paul finds himself once again in prison, this time awaiting sentencing to be executed. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one stood with me. At my first defense, no one stood with me. What's that first defense? One we're talking about here in Acts. No one stood with me. May it not be charged against him. But, verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. You see, Years down the line, Paul remembered no one standing with him in his first defense. But Paul also remembered who did stand with him. And it was the Lord himself ministering to his spirit. Church, I want to encourage you. The Lord will provide his ample strength. For you to accomplish exactly what he has intended for you in the time that you have here. In the days that he has ordained for you. 
Let's be about being obedient to what he's called us to. And let's allow the Lord to work out his outcomes. Because we know that he is working all things together for his good. For those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, church, is a comforting word to know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is near. A God who comes alongside of us. Father, we thank you for Paul and and, and the life that we're able to see in the pages of Scripture. We see the the realities of his life and and the realities are so much like our realities, Lord. The same kind of struggles, the same kind of, uh, of disappointments, the same kind of discouragements that come our way, Lord. But we see also this arrival of your comforting presence in Paul's life. And Lord, that is our desire too, that to, to hear from you. Father, I pray that when we find ourselves in these difficult situations, that it would be a reminder to us, Lord, to open your word all the more, to take in your word into our heart, to hide it, if you will, in our heart. Father, I pray that your word would be found on our lips, Lord, in those times of those valley experiences that the psalmist writes about. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who works at your timetable. Your timeliness is is incredible as we read the word. And we see that you appeared to Paul and stood by him at exactly the time that was needed in the text. Exactly the moment Paul needed to hear a word from you. Lord, there's some people here today who are in that moment. They're feeling tired. They're feeling discouraged. They're feeling out of things, out of touch. And, And Lord, they need to hear from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would make your word very clear to them. That your presence, your comforting presence would draw near to them. And that they would be strengthened and encouraged. That the wind of your spirit would blow mightily through them to walk forward. However hard it might be in these days ahead. To walk forward in the strength that you've given to them. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for being the one. And we thank you, Spirit, for leading the way. Father, we praise your name, your holy name. Amen.